God's ultimatum. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to talk about hell. Hell. Everyone's favorite topic to think about and to talk about. A place of eternal torment. Everybody knows the story and most people laugh it off, thinking that it's just a fable or a legend or that the only real people that are deserving of hell, if there was a hell, are Hitler, murderers, terrorists, and politicians. But the truth is that hell is no joke. I was going to insert a joke here, and it just felt wrong because hell isn't something we're supposed to laugh off. You see, people often wonder if hell even makes any sense at all. This is a very common question I hear, and we're going to deal with it today. Why would a God of love send people to hell? You could simplify simplify it even more by saying, How does hell make sense? How does it make sense? Well, today Jesus is going to tell us a parable that will not only answer that question, but is actually going to change the question in our mind altogether. He's going to turn that question around to why would God ever let anyone into heaven? And how does heaven make sense? We always need to remember, as we look at the Bible, that we are not the heroes in the Bible. We are the villains. We are the bad ones. The Pharisees always show us, when we are looking in the gospel stories and we see these terrible Pharisees and all their selfishness, they show us what is worst in us. Our hearts are Pharisee hearts. And that is just true. So, when we read the Bible, realize that we are the villain, and the hero is the one that rescues and gives his life for the villain. That's how the, the gospel story moves in the Bible. So, we're going to see some, a hero, we're going to see some villains here in our story today. So, I'm going to start off by giving you the cast of characters. This parable is kind of like a drama or a movie, you could say. You know, in today's world, there's movies and they have a plot and they have characters and a setting. Well, Jesus uses that same exact tool to uh, bring some light and some understanding to the people that he is talking to today. So here's the characters in our in our drama today. We have the man who plants the vineyard. And that is going to be God the Father. We have the vineyard itself. That's a character, and that's going to be Israel. The whole nation, all the people, all together as one is the vineyard. We have the tenants. These are the people who are going to be in charge of of taking care of the vineyard. These are uh, the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and scribes and and priests and such. Then we have the servants. We're going to see those uh, characters, and they're going to be the faithful prophets, and we'll see what happens to them. And then we have the beloved son who is sent by the Father, and we're, we know who that is. That, of course, is going to be Jesus. And so what this parable is going to do, Jesus is basically going to explain everything that's been going on for the past 2,000 years, past, and uh, we're going to see what 
uh, God's perspective is on what's been going on for the past couple thousand years. And I would think that maybe Jesus read Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, in his morning devotions this morning that he taught this. Because everything that he pulls out of um, uh, today in this parable is based on the parable from Isaiah chapter 5. So what we're going to do is we're simply going to start out by reading the same thing. We're going to read that parable from Isaiah chapter 5 and see what it says just briefly. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst, and also made a wine press in it. So, since he did all those wonderful things, since he provided everything that his vineyard could possibly need to be fruitful, it says, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, it shall be burned. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. So we can see there that Israel is his vineyard, the whole nation, and he loves them. He asked the question, what more could I have done to prove to you, to show you, to take care of you, to show you that I love you? He provided everything that they needed, yet they rejected him. They were on a long-term path of continually rejecting God. They are like a plant that produced terrible-tasting fruit. So there's going to be consequences for uh, this plant. It cannot be allowed to continue this way, God says. So, with all that in our mind, let's see what he says to Israel. A few hundred years later, when Jesus himself shows up three days before his betrayal and crucifixion. And that's the setting for our current drama the the parable that he's going to test uh that he's going to teach right now in mark chapter 12 verses 1 through 12 let's read the whole thing together then he began to speak to them in parables a man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it dug a place for it a wine vat and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they uh, took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. 
Again he sent them another servant, and him they threw at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and then many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them at last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He asked the Pharisees. Their response is, He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give that vineyard to others. So Jesus responds back to them, Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. So I want to first review those cast of characters to remind us what those characters were. First, we had the man who planted the vineyard. That's God the Father. This was all his plan. We had the vineyard. That's the nation of Israel. We had the vine dressers or the tenants. Those were the religious leaders in Israel. And we had the servants. Those were the faithful prophets that God sent And we had, at last, his beloved son. This is the drama that has been unfolding over the past couple thousand years with the nation of Israel. And Jesus is at the very culmination, the very end of it. Bird just flew by my head. All right. This parable tells the story of God's heartbreak from God's perspective. The Pharisees which are us, are so self-focused and selfish that they can only see the world through their own perspective. But God is helping us here to see things from his perspective, which is the truth. God plants this vineyard. Okay, So first of all, we see that he set up this people for success. He blessed them. He set up a wall and and hedges and a tower. He protected them. He took care of them. He supernaturally blessed them with so many blessings. He poured out love on them. He truly loved them. He put in work into this family, this nation, this people. He invested in them. And the leaders of this nation, what did they do? These Pharisees, in our story, we call them vine dressers. They were the Pharisees, the priests, the scribes, all the leaders of this nation. And, and they really led this nation and represent the whole the nation as a whole. Um, they did not understand who God was, what he was doing, and they rejected him. Not all the people rejected him, but... Most and the leaders certainly did. But what we see in this story is that God reaches out to his people over and over and over and over again. 
He visited them. He sent representatives, ambassadors. These are the prophets that God sent over and over throughout the thousands of years to Israel. Now, let's review, let's see what happened when God sent these servants. I'm just going to pick a few and highlight a few of the situations. We have Jeremiah, who wrote the book of Jeremiah. He was beaten and put in stocks and imprisoned for the majority of his ministry. No one ever listened to a word that he said. In his writings in chapter 7, verse 25, Jeremiah 7 25. I'll read it to you. And 26. Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26. From the day your ancestors left Egypt until now, I have continued to send my servants, the prophets, day in and day out. But my people have not listened to me or even tried to hear. They have been stubborn and sinful, even worse than their ancestors. That's Jeremiah's summary of how Israel had been treating God and treating God's messengers, getting worse and worse every generation. Isaiah, the prophet right before Jeremiah, uh, he was sawn in two. Not very nice. A prophet named Zechariah was stoned to death in the court of the temple as he was telling the people of God God's word. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26... Nehemiah tells the people, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and they cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. So we could, I could list many, many more, but fast forward to just a couple years before where we're at with Jesus right here, and you had John the Baptist, who was even, even he was rejected, by the nation of Israel as a whole and beheaded. So the book of Hebrews summarizes all this for us and the, the nation of Israel's treatment of the prophets when it says in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 through 38. Hebrews 11, verse 35 through 38. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and the chains and of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. So, what does all this mean? It means God is incredibly patient. God is incredibly patient. That's what this means. His love cannot really be questioned. Look at how long he endures and how patient he is. Look at his forgiveness and his mercy. 
he endures longer than any man would ever wait. He keeps sending messengers of his love. Some people say the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful and vengeful God, an angry God. But I think if you really look at it, he is an incredibly patient and loving God. That's the truth. Now there is a point where his venge- vengeance and wrath must be shown because he is just and holy. But who can deny that his patience is supreme? It's unbelievable. The question now is, since he is so patient, when will we listen? Again, we can't just look at the nation of Israel and say, those bad people, those stupid Israelites. No, they are us. When will we listen when God is being so patient with us? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's will is, is explained to us here. Why is God so patient? Why is he long, so long-suffering? Why does it seem like he waits so long to bring that judgment and that uh, wrath? Because he wants us desperately to repent. He wants us to agree with him. He wants us to turn back to him. In our story, in the parable, the, the landowner, he sends all of these messengers, these servants, and they get beat up, they get killed, they get tortured. And then he, he, he stops and he says, okay, I have one last chance. And he says this, therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. Look what's happening here. The father, he is he, Jesus is explaining the heart of God right here. He is laying open and bearing the heart of God for everyone to see. And check it out. Look at what Jesus explains to us. The father would say, maybe imagine the father saying this, I adore Jesus. He is my beloved son. He is my whole world. I love him. He's amazing. He is, he is to be worshipped and adored even as I share my own glory with him. He is the king of heaven. He is perfect and he's the perfect representative of all my heart, all my will, and all my glory. He is everything to me, the father would say. All of heaven is fixed on him, staring at him, focused on him. He is the very dream of angels. And every star sings his praise. All of hell fears him. They all tremble before him, every demon. None can stand before his power, his majesty, his glory, his beauty is 
without compare. His holiness can destroy every evil. His righteousness will judge the entire earth. Surely then, just imagine the father saying, Surely then, since my son is the delight of heaven, since he is my beloved, surely they will listen to him. Surely they will see. But what does our story say? It says, Those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. The response of these sinners is so sad. Instead of receiving the word of God, Jesus' name is the word of God, instead of receiving the word of God, they reject it and cast it out and kill him. It says, outside the vineyard. Just like Jesus was killed just outside the city limits of Jerusalem. And their, their point in doing this is that they think that if we silence the messenger, then maybe God will just go away. We're so sick and tired of this God who wants us to serve him. We're so tired of hearing about his plan for our lives. We are so tired of it and we want to live our own life and we will go to any extent to make that happen. So we will kill the messenger. Maybe God will just go away. Again, we can't just think those big bad Pharisees did this and they're so bad. We got to think how we do this all the time. I'm not going to read my word, my Bible. I'm not going to pray and, and surrender to God. In fact, let's make it illegal to pray at school. I'm not going to be part of a church. I'm not going to be part of God's family. In fact, let's try to convince people that Jesus was, wasn't even real. That he never lived. And that he's really not good, glorious, and the Messiah. The one true light of the world. We can just, let's do everything we can to convince people that Jesus is not the messenger. Let's try to convince people that Jesus is so narrow-minded that his message is not a message of truth and life, but it's a message of narrow-minded bigotry. My way or the highway. And in fact, let's murder him. Let's kill his followers. Let's burn the Bibles. Any conversation about him is now taboo or illegal. Anyone who loves him and follows him is a freak. The modern world is still doing the same thing. And so is my sinful heart. Let's read again part of our drama to see how it applies here. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers. Give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew they had spoke, he had spoken this parable against them. So he left them and went away. Jesus has a little conversation here with the Pharisees where he lets them declare their own judgment. He says, 
what is this vine dresser, the, the owner of the vine going to do with these vine dressers? And they give him the answer. They decide their own fate. They answer the ultimatum. They say he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vine vineyard to others. So God is really giving an ultimatum here. He gives all the prophets all throughout the years, but then then he sends his son and that is the final, he says, the last message, messenger. Jesus is God's ultimatum. That is the title of this sermon and we're really getting to the point here. You guys remember that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? They would go and ask all these trivia questions and the, the uh, host, when the, the contestant would submit their answer, the host would always say this final uh, phrase. He says, is that your final answer? And the contestant would waffle back and forth again, and then he'd say, okay, yes, that's my final answer. Well, Jesus is the ultimatum. He's the final question. And your response, my response to Jesus is our final answer. What is your final answer? Is that your final answer? God's mercy and peace, uh, excuse me, mercy and patience are just amazing. But once his son is given, you either have to accept him or reject him. There is no second chance after that. This is the ultimatum, the final question. And if you are rejecting Christ, you have rejected all, everything. You have shut against yourself the door of hope. Jesus said, and he knows better than anybody, he said, he that believes not or he that does not believe is already damned, condemned. And there remains nothing but damnation for anyone who will not believe in Jesus. I got a Spurgeon quote for you. So Spurgeon quote, Spurgeon quote. This is a good one. Are you ready? <clears throat> I don't know if you're ready. We'll, we'll go anyway. We'll, we'll see if you're ready. Charles Spurgeon said, If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love revealed to men. But, then Spurgeon adds this, but let us see for a minute who this messenger is. He is the one who is greatly beloved of his father. And he himself is of surpassing excellence. The Lord Jesus Christ is so inconceivably glorious that I tremble at any attempt to describe his glory. Surely he is very God of very God co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, yet he decided to take upon himself a human form. He was born an infant into our weakness, and he lived as a carpenter to share our toil, our work. 
He took upon himself the form of a servant, yet in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the prince of the kings of the earth, yet he took a towel and washed his disciples' feet. Because of his Godhead, you must dare not harden your heart. He is God's well-beloved, and if you are wise, he will also be yours. Do not turn your back on him whom all the angels worship. Beware lest you reject one of whom God loves so well, for he will take it as an insult to himself. God will be insulted if you reject the one that he loves. He that despises the anointed of God has blasphemed God himself. You put your finger in the eye of God when you slight his son. In grieving the Christ, you vex the very heart of God. Therefore, do not do it. I beg you then, by the love which God bears to his son, to listen to this matchless messenger of mercy who is begging you to repent. Now, if that doesn't move your heart, then maybe your heart is still dead and cry out to God to make it alive. Jesus is a messenger of boundless love and mercy, but make no doubt he is the ultimatum. We must choose. So why would a God of love send someone to hell? Well, honestly, he extends his hand of grace and mercy time after time after time, but finally he sends his beloved son, literally saying, if you want to go to hell, my child, you are going to have to step over my dead body to do so. And if you reject his son, and if you step over him, stepping on him, on your way to hell, there is no hope. You have committed the unforgivable sin and have chosen for yourself, for yourself his wrath instead of his mercy. So if we really think about it, hell makes total sense. For me, and for you, and for everybody. It's heaven that is strange. How could God possibly forgive sinners such as us who have stepped on his body, spit in his face, and rejected his beloved son and all his messengers time after time after time, chosen our own way? We've rejected him so many times. We've not surrendered to his rule. We have tried to take back what we thought was ours and try to live our lives the way we wanted. We are sinners who consistently choose our own way, sinners who fail time after time after time. Even when we know what to do, what is right to do, we still fail to do it. Why would any of us be able to go to heaven? But the sacrifice of Jesus is so great and sufficient that God accepts his sacrifice on our behalf. It's because Jesus is so amazing. If Jesus says, you've trusted him, and you've called out to him and he knows it, then your salvation is guaranteed because God the Father respects what his son Jesus says so much. He loves him, he honors him, and he knows 
that if Jesus says, this is my child, I, my death counts for this child, then God says, boom, done. It's all good. This reminds us of that verse, the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I found this this week, this little explanation of that. God, the greatest giver, so loved, that's the greatest motive, the world, that's the greatest thing in need, that he gave, this is the greatest act, his only son, that's the greatest gift, that whosoever, there's the greatest invitation, believes in him, that's the greatest opportunity, should not perish, that's the greatest deliverance, but have eternal life, which is the greatest joy. God is so patient, but make no mistake, if a man dies with unpaid debt, as a guilty sinner, there comes a judgment, and God must judge because he is holy and righteous. And we already know the standard that we're going to be judged by. You guys know those Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Have we really lived our life with no other gods except God? Making no other graven image, never using God's name as a curse word? Have we kept the Sabbath day? Have we honored our parents at every moment? Have we hated or murdered? Have we committed adultery? Have we stolen? Have we lied? Have we desired, coveted what someone else had? The answer is yes to every single one of those. We are guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. We are sinners. Yet God in his boundless mercy has provided a gracious way for us to be saved and forgiven and set free. And that was the bloody sacrifice of his own son. The precious blood of Jesus poured out for each and every sinner that would just simply cry out for it. If we ignore this salvation... If we spit on it, if we reject it, there is no more sacrifice for sin. There's nothing more that can be done to help you. You have rejected the help. I can, I can encourage you with this illustration or explain that a little bit better with this illustration. Imagine, if you will, that we're all in an airplane and we're all falling out of the sky about to, to perish we blew up the engine somehow with our partying. And there is a guy on this airplane offering you a parachute. And this parachute is Jesus. He is the salvation that we need to put on. The Bible says, put on the Lord Jesus. Every other religion and philosophy says, you need to save yourself. You need to be good enough. You need to work harder. You need to pray harder. You need to serve God enough, or you need to just keep his rules better. Which is really saying, find your own parachute. Or try to make one real quick. Believe that there's a magic parachute that's just going to appear. Ask someone else for a parachute. Jesus is a jerk for offering you a free one. Jesus is narrow-minded for telling you that you need a parachute. 
If Jesus really loved you, he would just give you wings or keep the airplane from crashing. But the truth is, Jesus is the only one who does the saving for us. He's holding out the parachute, lovingly begging you to accept his free offer of salvation, put it on, and follow him. He's the only one who purchased this grace that he freely offers to us with the precious blood of the Son of God. Now, this parachute, I'm, I'm going to revisit our illustration of the parachute one more time. This is not a parachute that it, that's designed to give you a better life. This parachute is an ultimatum. Imagine, if you will, back on our plane, imagine two men seated next to each other on this plane. The stewardess gives the first man a parachute and instructs him, put it on and this will give you a better flight. Wink, wink. Not understanding how the parachute could possibly improve his flight, this first passenger is a little skeptical. Finally, he decides to see if the claim is true. And so he straps on the parachute and he notices it's kind of heavy and it's really uncomfortable and it's hard. He has to sit totally upright and he can't really rest. Well, but he, he kind of consoles himself with the promise of a better flight, living his best flight now. And our f- first passenger decides to give it a little bit of time. But because he's the only one wearing a parachute, some of the other passengers begin smirking at him, which only adds to his humiliation. Unable to stand up any longer, our friend simply slumps in his seat and unstraps the parachute and throws it on the floor. He's disillusioned and he's bitter and his his heart is really kind of sad and embarrassed that he gave this parachute so much of his time. He feels like he was told a lie. A different stewardess comes. She has a different look in her eyes. She's more serious. And she hands his neighbor, the second man, a parachute and says some different instructions. She tells him that any moment this plane is going to crash. And that they are going to be making an exit out of the plane at 25,000 feet. And he needs to put it on immediately or die. Our second passenger gracefully straps on that parachute. He accepts it with joy and he's so excited. He doesn't even notice how heavy it is upon his shoulders or that he can't sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen to him if he jumped out without the parachute. When the other passengers laugh at him, he thinks, You won't be laughing when you're falling to the ground. Now, with this story, we can kind of analyze what the motive and the result of each passenger's experience. The first passenger, his motive for putting on the parachute was that he would improve his flight, that he would have a better life. And as a result, he was humiliated by the other passengers. He was disillusioned and he felt like he was lied to by the stewardess who was trying to help. And as far as he can, he's concerned, he'll never put back on that parachute. The second man 
he put on the parachute to escape the danger of the upcoming jump because he knew what would happen to him without it. He had a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he was saved from certain death and he was able to withstand the mockery and hatred of the other passengers. His attitude toward the stewardess who gave him the parachute was gratitude. He was thankful. And if we think about how the world and how Christians today are acting, they've really fallen to those two camps. We tell people, put on the Lord Jesus. He will give you love, joy, peace, and fulfillment. In other words, he will improve your flight. And so people put him on and they have tribulation, trial, and persecution. Their life doesn't get easier. It actually gets a little harder. The devil starts attacking them. And so what do they do? They give up. Because they were promised things in the wrong order. For us to understand how much we need the parachute, we need to see the danger that we in and we're in. And that's why we talk about the law and the, the Ten Commandments and how we've all broken the law. That's like dangling someone outside the, the, the airplane and saying, look, you are going to die and you need a parachute. And no one is ever going to accept a parachute unless they understand that they are a sinner that is on their way to hell. It's the only reason that we will be able to accept that parachute and keep it on through the trials and tribulations of this world. So I think today God is sounding forth a message saying, please listen to my son. There is an ultimatum. There's been many messages before this. You might have heard the gospel so many times before this. But today is the day that you need to call out to him and say, I want the parachute. I know that I'm guilty and I need the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Jesus Christ to wash away my guilt. I will put on Jesus and follow him. That invitation goes out today to wherever my voice is heard or any of the other churches that are preaching this everlasting gospel. And if it's going to your ears, you don't know if this is your last day. And I beg you, put on the parachute. It is so vital. It is so important. Put on the parachute. Receive all that Jesus has done for you. Confess your sin and he will forgive it all. Repent. Turn away from your sin to follow him. And his salvation is yours. Father, we pray that your gospel would save many today, that your blood would work, would do things that we could never do, that it would wash away sins that we could never, ever wash away by our own efforts. God, I pray that not a single person hearing my voice would shrink back in unbelief, but would choose to believe in faith and what you have done for them, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the King of glory, who is going to return very soon to restore all things to, this Father, to the Father's kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.